0: Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of breakfasters for week ending May 26th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9 a.m., broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Adam Christou takes us to Hyrule, the fantasy setting of The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom for this week's Game Changer segment. And Kent Morris, an accomplished artist and curator, joins us to discuss the transformative power of Confined 14, an exhibition that amplifies the voices of incarcerated and recently released First Nations artists.
1: For Weird Science, Dr. Jen took us through eDNA and the ethical minefield surrounding it. David Constantine took us through the magic of mycelium and how it is revolutionising design and function. And Rachel Kamath and Shamita Siva lead actors in Crocodiles, a new play about class, culture and responsibility in the aged care sector.
2: We check in with the latest in electric blanket technology. Digger gets wistful over the vast spectrum of autumnal foliage. But we kick off the week with Nat getting on the tools.
1: I got on the tools this weekend, um, which is a slight exaggeration. It's more more accurate description would be I watched kind of closely someone get on the tools and help me build my vision. But you were right there with them. But I was hovering, asking questions. I did get involved a bit. I am always so impressed I don't it's not something I've done frequently I I went through a bit of a stage in my early 20s where I was I really wanted to kind of try and get some basic woodwork skills I didn't get that far I learned to to do it like use the drop saw basics hammer and everything like that but incredible really I have such respect for the tools and that the people who can
0: Oh well, certainly Ma- fashion sermon. something out of these materials into something. Yeah, truly functional and aesthetically oh, pleasing.
1: <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean the hammer. You just you forget how incredible the <laughs> hammer is. Let's take a moment. <laughs> yes, really, let's take a moment. Like all just to, with like a subtle tap. Gentle tap, you can align something straight.
0: Well, that's true.
1: And all the different ways that you can kind of manoeuvre it to pull a nail out, it's just something that you see, you know, you know it's done often every day, no big deal. But when you focus in on it and you don't do it often, it blew me away.
0: I think it's beautiful to appreciate these things.
2: I loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. I mean, it's interesting. Stars. Is there Whitley If you are familiar with Whitling?
0: No, oh, as, a, as a hobby.
3: Yeah, I see what you mean. And
2: so whittling, I think, his users would work. Okay, uh, but I think there's maybe a bit of a fraught um, appreciation of it because, you know, my dad built our house. Wow. So, so you know that sort of got, and then there was the the idea the birthday present idea of a whittling kit because you know he fairly had injured you know he can't build a house now that's yeah sure and then it's like well well what are we doing is is whittling just a facsimile of what you're talking about
1: so yeah I'm still confused what whittling is. Is it like making a little tiny house? Because it sounds like you're insulting your dad by buying him a whittling kit.
2: That's right. I'm well, that, that's, the that's the debate. Mm. Yeah, so to make from a piece of wood by cutting off small thin pieces, I suppose you're shaving it, you can make a little... You know, there's a... Okay. You can, you can fashion a dinosaur. Okay, yeah. Wiggling
0: a custom is something that you can do in a domestic setting, whereas carpentry might not necessarily always right. be the case.
2: right, yeah. And so while I totally am on board with your look at what you can do with wood, Yeah. I feel it can... At, and these aren't my words. This is the debate in the community, and it's a hot debate. Uh oh, hot debate. Uh, whether it's infantile, whether woodwork can become, you know, hobbyish and not as yeah, you know, as as active or or no, as... totally. And
1: look, I'm not interesting
2: from what you've described in Whitling.
1: <laughs> uh, 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 uh. No, not at all. I want to be able to build stuff. Yeah, but I am not there yet. So, yeah, while we were making, I think I mentioned to you last week, uh, like a, a set piece, which I have no plans for, no no show currently in the works. But, yeah, I just thought it would be fun to have a door.
0: Actually, that's true because I was so absorbed by your passionate tribute to the hammer to and the hammer. woodwork that I, I meant to ask what it was that the, the carpentry was directed towards over yeah. the weekend. Yeah, so,
1: yeah, a the door to piece. nowhere.
0: A door to nowhere.
1: Yeah, so it'll be. That was it. That's it. So it's it's not like I haven't built a house, but it's a section of a house and it's not whittling.
0: Well, it's a key, that, a it, key aspect of a house is it's, the door.
1: Yeah, it's a key aspect of a house. It's the You haven't even
2: written a joke for it.
1: No. I feel like, um, I mean, I don't know. It'll be like, it's <laughs> kind of like you're like Kramer in the door in Seinfeld. Like mm. you're just constantly going in and out of it. I, I always... Um, want something to be behind if I want to, like, make changes and stuff like that since I do a bit of sketch comedy that, yeah, I thought a door could be fun to walk in and out of. But now I feel like I'm putting pressure on it, talking about it on air.
0: Well, no, I mean, symbolically and metaphorically the door is so rich Mm. in possibility that it almost doesn't need to be determined at this point. Does
2: the person making the door need to know that there's a purpose and a functionality behind it? Um, or to, in order to excel or to for certain details to receive no, attention,
1: if, if anything, so it's my boyfriend who's helping me do it and he's so excited to do it. And he's working on this door like there's a deadline.
4: Cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have to be like, there is no need for this door, there is no rush. And he's yet- coming over, he's like, I guess we should work on the door. I go, if you want to,
2: yeah, but the uh, yeah, is if there. anything,
1: he needs to relax about Mm. the project
2: and does it matter which way it swings
1: that's what i said because he's left-handed so i was like what are you doing is this the right way and he goes is there a standard way that the door opens and i go i
2: think so (laughs) but i'm not sure which way so, Did you get to the bottom of it? No.
1: or It's not hinged on yet. We're kind of using just kind of wood we're finding around. <laughs> it, sounds like such, um, it sounds like such a nightmare, but we're kind of like altering things as we go. We're going at a leisurely pace. Yeah. You know, I'm meandering around with the hammer, tapping, yeah. tapping things,
5: Look, we breaking windows. We
2: can't buy a house, but we can all make a door. Triple Triple R. Stu's dragged himself away from the screen to tell us what has been raptured this week. Morning, Chris Stu. Hello,
4: hi, it's good to be here. It
2: is good to have you with us. We're wondering, well, why am I still talking? Well, but- What's going on <laughs> out there in video game land? This is huge.
4: Yeah, I, I feel like we've been bowled over by a big blockbuster that's sort of, uh, I guess it hasn't come out of nowhere because it has been one of the most anticipated games of the last couple of years since it was announced Uh, but a brand new game from the Legend of Zelda series by Nintendo released in the last fortnight it's called Tears of the Kingdom and it is the follow-up to the critically acclaimed Breath of the Wild which came out in 2017 and was sort of a huge paradigm shift for both the Zelda series but also for how people experience and played in what we call open world games so the idea of like a game world that is very open it's sort of like a sandbox the idea is that you can kind of go anywhere and everywhere and 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 kind of explore to your heart's content and this this concept of an open world game has been around for quite a long time now since I would say maybe the early 2000s is like a, and you could even go earlier than that if you wanted to. I'm sure people could text in with examples of how we've had this sort of idea of a game for a long time. But, um, you know, touchstones over the years would include things like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. So sort of free form sort of crime game where you can kind of go across all over their version of LA called Los Santos and sort of make your own adventure up as you play as well. You're in a huge sandbox. So The Legend of Zelda was never really an open world game series until Breath of the Wild and now Tears of the Kingdom. And prior to that was more of a linear adventure experience where you would do a lot of puzzle solving and it would have sort of an epic sort of fantasy scope to it. You would go into what's called temples and dungeons and try to find keys and unlock doors. Um, The very original Legend of Zelda, like back in 1980. I want to say 1985 on the Nintendo Entertainment System did have an open world structure to it. So it had a huge world map that you could explore at your leisure. Um, And it was so big and so encompassing that that game actually came with a map of it so that people wouldn't get lost. So Tears of the Kingdom, big shoes to fill. Breath of the Wild, the previous game before it, has been remarked by a lot of people as the greatest game of all time. I definitely had it in my top three after I played it. It just was a wonderful experience in such a... like. Fresh take on how to design a world that to get lost in is that, is that what it is that makes it so captivating?
0: Just the beauty and the sense of exploration
4: it is what I like to call the sense of discovery and and what I like about the sequel Tears of the Kingdom is it 's doubled down on that idea of the sense of discovery the the kind of dopamine hit of what 's over there and what can I find and it 's fully up to me to decide how i want to what I want to do and what I want to prioritize and where I want to go um. And so Tears of the Kingdom, as I've said, doubles down on this in a way that is profound and sort of expands that idea of the sense of discovery into the sense of satisfaction of problem solving in a way that I have never experienced in a video game before. And we'll talk about how it does that because it's so unique and incredible. And I'm a little bit terrified for how... Every game developer is going to look at how this game has been made and what it offers and how that's going to reverberate out into games for decades to come. So um, to say that this game is blowed up is an understatement. It sold 10 million copies in three days. uh, So I think it's going to be a big one Um, and a little bit more context of story before we get into the mechanics of what makes this game so special. Players, once again, return to the land of Hyrule, which is the fantasy kingdom that the Legend of Zelda series is set in. You play as Link, who is the hero of this game and was the hero of Breath of the Wild, and this is a direct continuation of that game. Uh, You don't need to have played Breath of the Wild to get into this, and you can just watch a YouTube video of the previous game's story to feel up to date. Um, But essentially, um, alongside Princess Zelda, Link has been exploring uh, underneath the castle of Hyrule um, and... Uh, because there has been some sort of emanating mysterious ooze and slime that's been coming out of the castle that's been making people sick. Um, While they explore it, they come across a twisted, gnarled corpse, which is quite dark for a game that is very bright and light, uh, which comes to life, curses Link, Zelda falls down a hole in the ground and disappears. She's gone. And at the same time, a mysterious great catastrophe called the Upheaval Hits Hyrule, uh, which results in mysterious flying islands ripping themselves out of the ground and hovering up in the sky. The entire kingdom falls into chaos. Monsters appear everywhere. Um, the world has sort of ripped and split itself open in a really interesting are way. These
2: the titular tears,
4: yeah, uh,
2: of said kingdom.
4: I don't want to spoil okay. what the titular tears are, but <laughs> they are literal and they exist, and it's very cool. Okay. Um, so after all these events happen, Link wakes up on one of these sky islands in the sky, uh, with no idea of where he is and what's happened to him, and his arm one of his arms has changed. It's a different arm uh that's been grafted onto him. Um and there is a mysterious voice speaking to him in his head through the arm, telling him that he needs to save the world and find Zelda. Um that is the beginning of this game Uh, and the real fun of this game is what this hand gives you in terms of powers so through the opening few hours of this game you will visit a bunch of little puzzle shrines where you get to unlock a new power for your hand uh, which really impacts the way that you play with this world Um, so Link's new powers let's go through them the first one is called Ultra Hand which is such a great video game phrase Um, and Ultra Hand allows Link to levitate objects pick things up in the environment and stick things together essentially you can build contraptions and make things out of stuff you can chop down trees and stick logs together and make a raft maybe you can make a bridge out of a bunch of logs that you've stuck together then you can lift them up rotate them and place them in the environment Uh, you have another ability called fuse which allows link to merge items together with his weapons and shields and bows so see a stick on the ground you can pick it up use it as a weapon see a tree log on the ground and you can stick it to your sword and have a stronger sword that will smash around with the power of a log that times 50 billion for everything in this game (laughs) um you have another ability called ascend which is really cool where link looks up and if there is a ceiling above him he can ascend through it and pop out on the other side allowing you to like slurp through mountains or um make a ceiling a floor and do all sorts of cool stuff so that you can climb and get through the environment it really allows a lot of um smart problem solving for when you're stuck. And then recall, which allows Link to select an item in the environment and rewind time on it and have it travel backwards in time where it was. So say, for example, um, a monster throws a rock at you midway in air, you can recall it and watch that rock fly back to the monster and hit it in the head. Oh. <laughs> um, and so you could do all sorts of stuff like that with recall. And It allows you to break this game in really exciting ways and solve problems in ways that you would never imagine as well. So here's a really good example. Say there is a treasure chest up high and you want to reach it. um, And all you've got near you is maybe a log. um, And there's no way to safely climb up to that treasure chest. Well, you can pick up the log with Ultra Hand, lift it up in the air, levitate it like a platform, then put it back down, stand on the log, and then recall it and make your own lift. And then the log will float up into the air and you can use it to get to the treasure chest.
1: Wow. That would be a great solution for me picking olives out of my tree. only I could harness it. It's, yeah. it's,
4: <laughs> it's just these little things of like, oh, I can do that this is something that I can try that is really the key to the lock of what makes this game so great so it has all of the great combat and exploration and discovery of Breath of the Wild it has a massive world to get lost in it's full of these quaint sort of cozy little stories and side adventures with characters that you meet across the kingdom it has the epic grand like scope of fantasy of the story of what is going on with Zelda where did she disappear to um, that hook of trying to find her and uncover what's happening and what is the great evil that caused the upheaval is really exciting. But the real joy of this game is what can I build, what can I make, and how can I break all these puzzles and problems in front of me? Really, with rewards, my own yeah, imagination. Definitely, really.
0: yeah. I was thinking this is just a, such an exploration of the imagination,
4: and it's amazing because the game says we're actually going to let you do whatever you want. So you'll walk into a puzzle shrine area with like a really beautifully built puzzle by one of the developers. Maybe it's a whole bunch of railings that you need to build a minecart to kind of move across. And you could look at that and go, I want to try and build the minecart and figure out this puzzle. Or you could go, but how can I use ultra Hand and levitate myself up in a really weird way so that I can just break this puzzle and not do it? And that in itself is a solution to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And you feel really great when you come across stuff like that and I feel like the puzzles in this game are so inventive and really fun um I came across one the other day in a shrine which was basically Jenga so it was a Jenga tower that was stacked up and there was a ball at the top of it that I had to grab um and put in a in a contraption so that it would open a door but if I got too close to the Jenga tower and tried to climb on it everything would fall and I would have to start again so I had to use ultra hand to carefully pull out the Jenga pieces in a way that the towel wouldn't tip over and reset everything so that I could get to this ball to open the door. And I spent maybe 15 minutes trying to figure out the best way to do that. And that was so much fun. I never thought playing virtual Jenga in a video <laughs> game would be entertaining. But the fact that I can do that, but then also go on in a grand sweeping adventure at the same time is just kind of mind boggling. The The stuff that is being made on the internet at the moment by very creative players, particularly out of Japan, is pretty wild. I have seen people build a mech robot that Link can control and walk around and shoot lasers and bullets at the enemies. People have made helicopters. People have made, like, full sailboats. I saw someone create a working oil pump type contraption, so it's a proper sort of, like, You know, I I don't have a mechanical mind, but it's got gears and a working thing. They basically created it so that they could like slowly barbecue fish over a fire and then it would drop the fish and deposit it so that you could pick it up. Completely useless, (laughs) but like really cool that someone probably spent an hour engineering this thing out of like wheels and logs and various contraptions that they found in the world to put together. Did Um, these videos make it seem
2: that Zelda is pretty... Age-appropriate, like, is it what? Yeah, I mean,
4: like, this is an adventure for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I almost say, like, this is, like, the ultimate video game to get into regardless of your skill level. Because even though it can be quite challenging and it is an open-world action game, the fact that it allows you to solve its problems in so many different ways opens the door to everyone to be able to play it and to appreciate it um you can do so much and it's really fun. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface <laughs> of, of what we can talk about here.
2: Uh, well, The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom we'll be talking about a lot off air as well. Uh, it's on Nintendo Switch. Yeah. And everyone's on it. 10 million copies in 3 days. Yeah,
4: it's yeah, it's all over TikTok.
2: All right, Chris, Thanks very much. <laughs> Cheers.
3: Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. For over
2: a decade, The Torch has provided art, cultural and industry support to Indigenous offenders and ex-offenders in Victoria through its Indigenous Arts in Prison and Community program. At the top of The Torch is Kent Morris, who has over 20 years' experience as an artist and curator with specialist knowledge of and connections within the Indigenous Arts Australia Uh, and culture industry. The Torch's exhibition, Confined 14, is currently in full swing. And to tell us about the program and the more than 450 artworks on show, the Torch CEO and gifted artist in his own right joins us now. Ken, (laughs) welcome to Breakfasters.
6: Well, thank you. What a fantastic introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: Tell us about the original ambition and function of the Torch and whether it's been rock solid all the way through or whether it's evolved.
6: Yeah, fantastic question. So... I'd say rock solid and the reason for that is right from the inception of this program to support First Nations men and women experiencing incarceration and that complex journey back to community was that the men and women were engaged right from day one to talk about what their thoughts and ideas, share their stories, what a program of this nature would look like, how it could work, what were the key elements of it. I didn't go in and the torch never had the idea to build a program and take it in. The program would be built from within the knowledge and lived experiences of the men and women and we've held true to that to this day and also very importantly in conjunction with that, the knowledge and lived experiences of elders who've worked in this area for decades because it's such a long and ongoing issue, the overrepresentation of our people.
2: Mm. I mean, you're talking about prisons where it'd be hard to get things moving, isn't it? Like to work within a bureaucracy that literally strict. What have you come up
6: against? I think one of the great aspects of the Victorian Aboriginal community in partnership with uh, the justice system and Corrections Victoria has been a real desire to try and make change. And so we've always experienced fantastic support in terms of delivering the program. It is a complex ecosystem, no no doubt about that. But I think even within the 18-month pilot period, within the prison staff and Others engaged with corrections could just see the changes that were happening for the men and women engaged and those positive changes, which not only impacts on them and and their families but also on on the prison staff and the ability for people to see... Some positive outcomes, and to see that we can create change working together.
1: Because yeah, when the program was formed, it required like a new policy which allowed people who were in jail, incarcerated, um, to sell their artworks, which was really quite significant. Yeah, can you talk to that and how important it is that 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 um, ability for them to you know make some money while they're yeah, still um, incarcerated?
6: Yeah, this is a really significant aspect and a great example of how we can create change by working together. So when I left the Curry Heritage Trust to build this program mm-hmm. at the Torch, Uncle Sandy Atkinson said to me, for 40 years we've been fighting, 40 years our community's been advocating for men and women in prison to be able to sell their artworks, to give them some hope and confidence and the ability to to move on with their lives post-release. He said, it's your turn now, young fella. And I looked at him and thought, geez, this is is a big ask. But that 40 years of advocacy was really crucial and important. And then we were able to change policy on the back of the good work of the program, it becoming... uh, Available through media and stories like this being shared, Uh, a fantastic endorsement by the Ombudsman, and for the first time, I think, in those 40 years, bipartisan support at a parliamentary level to understand how significant it is and how important it is for First Nations men and women who are experiencing incarceration to not only be able to explore and express and share their culture but to connect to an industry and to connect to an economy and to participate in that economy to provide those economic benefits, not only for them but for their families and for that next generation coming through.
2: Mm. Can you speak to the attention that individual inmates and artists receive from the torch?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So I think when I started there might have been 11 correctional facilities. Unfortunately there's now around 15 that we frequent. So, it's, And each facility is different. So an Indigenous arts officer will go in and all of our... Wonderful arts officers are First Nations creatives in their own right that have not only a, a cultural practice, but a significant connection to the arts industry and an understanding of how uh, complicated it can be. And but also what cultural processes can be engaged within that. So, it's a way of navigating the the complexities of the prison system. Sometimes there's an art class that we can attend and add our expertise and knowledge to, and resources for the men and women. Sometimes it's cell to cell or in very differing circumstances for people experiencing those complexities within a correctional facility. This does sound complex, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But the grassroots of it is the men and women within the prisons that we work with want to create change. They understand how important it is to find out more about their cultural identity, the importance of sharing our stories. It's very much an important part of our culture that sometimes the men and women haven't had access to do that. Yeah. To learn, express, share and build an economy even within the the complexities of that prison system.
2: And what about uh, when you turn up? Do you, are they like, oh, no, Kent's here, I haven't finished? <laughs> or, you know, he's so good and this is terrible. What, what's the... How are you received or are you too close to know?
6: No, look, it's it's been quite a while since I've been able to deliver the program. So we have 23 staff now. It's a long way from the 1.5 when I started. Um, but, look, I do absolutely love getting out as much as I can uh, into the community and working with the artists my main focus I guess now is with those artists coming back into the community and and reconnecting so I always love catching up with the men and women hearing their stories there's always a a respect for each other's cultural practices no one ever shies away and says oh I haven't finished that work it's always an ongoing discussion um and again all the arts workers and that would include myself and uh, you know members of our executive management we're always learning and we're always feeding back our knowledge and insights into the program to support the men and women and often as well those artists will be feeding in and their knowledge and experience and, and teaching us and we're learning from them at the same time. That's so brilliant.
1: Oh, I was going to say, is there an opportunity as well for um, the artists who have gone through the program, you know, once they're released, can they, do they ever come back in and, like, continue to teach other uh, inmates and things like that?
4: Yeah,
6: Yeah. fantastic questions. Around seven years ago I floated this idea and I was told that wouldn't happen Uh mm. I can remember the exact words ringing in my ears so still to this day. Kent will do a lot of things to support you in the program, but we won't do that. Uh, participants going in who've been incarcerated to deliver that program, that's a, a bridge too far. But we just keep, kept chipping away, as our community always does, chipped away. And now we have uh, three artists from the program who regularly go back in as Indigenous arts officers or as Chris Austin does as an Indigenous program mentor to... Sh- not only share their knowledge and experience of the arts that they've learnt and accumulated, but their lived experiences of breaking free from the criminal justice system. And we have the ability for some of our other staff who are employed at the Torch. Six of our staff are men and women from the program, and they can sometimes go back in as well to share their stories. On uh, you know, I remember Flick schaefer Smith, who's our finance and uh, operations assistant went back in to share her story with the women, how she'd been able to navigate through this really treacherous journey that can happen in the criminal justice system, particularly for our women, and how she'd been able to navigate that and to share that with others so they can see and hear her story and think about how that might relate to them and their journey.
0: Absolutely. So so um, brilliant to hear all about the vital work that The Torch is doing and the exhibition which is on at the moment is also growing. It's expanded this year, we understand, into Gallery 2 with a, a satellite exhibition called In the Torchlight. Could you tell us a little bit about this?
6: Yes, look, this exhibition, it, it's bigger every year and I think we have 473 artworks in total this year which is a huge amount of Mm. of art 402 unique artists uh sharing those stories so one i think one of the great things about the exhibition which includes in the torchlight is that people can really come face to face and, and interact and learn from 402 first nations men and women going through this process and and share their journey I thought we might have to spill over in Gallery 2 this year because it just gets so, so big every year, Confined 14. So I said, right, can we have Gallery 2 to the campus? I said, yes, you can. Um, but we managed to curate and put Confined 14 into the main gallery, which is enormous, and then for the first time have a, a focused exhibition to add another element and another insight uh, for visitors. And this one is called um, – well, this one focuses around the women in our program, those in the community. There's five artists who've come through the program and are really establishing themselves as artists and looking at their practice more broadly. And again, they're kind of providing that access and that and that idea for so many of the women in the program who find it challenging to continue their practice post-release, that through their resilience and strength and, and determination and commitment, they've been able to do that and produce the most beautiful works. It's a stunning exhibition. I'd really encourage everyone to, to see both. You can't really see one without the other because they're interlinked uh, in the same uh, venue. But just to consider how generous, I guess, the artists are in sharing their stories and how complex that can be and the beauty and strength and power of these works.
2: Mm. Well, you mentioned the complexity. We spoke to a coordinator, an artist uh, from the torch, Sean Miller, who was talking about the shame culture and maybe creating an environment within an environment. How is that tracking, do you think, the acceptance of being an artist in prison?
6: It's a really good question and it's one that we ask in our evaluations and it's a very poignant question for many of them the men and women finding that sense of identity beyond just being someone who's incarcerated within this system that really doesn't provide any access or ability to, to change that trajectory. So we're finding more and more that the artists are puffing their chest out a little bit more and being proud to say, well, I'm an artist. Mm. But that's, been, that's a long journey because they're often just seen and compartmentalised as someone who's in strife with the criminal justice system. Now, we've had incredible stories of artists coming out back into the community and working away and continuing that good work to find that members of their community approaching them to say, ''Oh, you're the artist. I saw that painting, brother.'' And the and the artist and this is a true story conveyed to me, ringing me to say, oh, "Brother, the people are calling me the artist, and, and they started <laughs> starting to talk to me." He said, "Normally, people cross the road to avoid me, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so that started to change his perception of who he was. The community, he changed the community's perceptions by his actions." Hmm. And then they changed his perceptions by that ability to respond and connect with him through the work he was doing.
2: All right. Well, to check out the art we've been discussing, the exhibition Confined 14 runs until the 4th of June at Glenara City Council Gallery. Head to thetorch.org.au for more information. And we've been speaking with artists and CEO of The Torch, Kent Morris. Thanks very much, Kent.
7: Melbourne's own Drupal RRR. R.
2: Four weird times. Doctor Jen's here to leave her intellectual residue on all she touches. Morning.
5: <laughs> that sounds a bit gross. No, it's <laughs> delightful. Is intellectual residue like mucus?
2: <laughs> mucus of the mind.
5: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I heard you guys talking. Are we all? Everyone's clear on what environmental DNA actually means? What eDNA actually means? No. No. Oh, good. Let's talk about it then. So we know what DNA is, yes, molecules in every cell of our body that uh, contains our genetic code. That's good. And we know what the environment is. Environmental DNA, shortened as eDNA, is simply the DNA that an animal sheds into the environment as it moves around. So it could be mucus. (laughs) It also could be poo. It could be wee. It could be hair. It could be skin. So essentially animals are just shedding you know, little tiny fragments of their body into the environment all around them. And it's incredibly helpful. So you think about the biodiversity crisis that we are currently in. It's never been more important that we can work out which animals live where, essentially. If we're going to have any hope of having conservation measures that are going to make a difference, we need to know where animals are and what environments they depend on. But that can be really hard, and time-consuming and expensive and and even potentially impossible. Some animals are just really hard to find or to spot or to count, you know, to survey. Particularly think about fish, you know. Daniel, if I say go over to that river, can you tell me what species of fish live in that river? Mm. How are you going to work that out? I (laughs) would (laughs) struggle. And and if you really needed to work it out, you know, you, you could do a whole lot of trapping. But that's hugely expensive and time-consuming and potentially really stressful for the animals. So we want to think about other ways. So platypus, there's a um, really big Great Australian platypus search that goes on every year to work out which water bodies have platypus in them. eDNA, what you have to do is scoop up a bit of the water um, and essentially looking for tiny fragments of DNA. And because DNA is like barcodes essentially for different species, if you use genetic sampling, you know, you use the sampling technique and then you use the DNA sequencing technology that has advanced massively over the last, I don't know, five, ten years. All you need is your piece of water and you can say, yeah, this animal is here or this animal doesn't. How good is that, right? It's incredible. Amazing. Super awesome. Except. <laughs> um, Just recently I read an article that made me think about a whole aspect of eDNA that, yeah, I don't know how much you guys have read about it, but I hadn't thought about it at all. And the fact is that we're all animals too. So we are also shedding our mucus (laughs) or whatever else into the environment. It made me think, do you remember Gadigar? Do you remember the eyelash scene?
2: Oh, yes. In
5: Gadigar? Yes. You know, one eyelash meant that, that the powers that be could determine... Who this individual person was with massive consequences. And you know, this person had done everything they could to hide their real identity in one singular eyelash shed into the environment was enough to change everything. Daniel's got a bemused look on his face. You you remember the scene, right? No, I
2: think I had to write an essay on it.
5: (laughs) Really? Tell us, what was the conclusion?
2: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was a good movie and uh, no, yeah, I I remember, I'm thinking now of the the wastewater testing as well.
8: Yes, exactly.
2: With COVID shedding and even drug use and they know so much.
5: Yeah, so so I guess that was the point of this article and – the article came from a group of researchers in Florida who were working on sea turtles. And this is a really great technique. eDNA dna is a really great technique for them to uh, monitor the sea turtles without having to capture them. So no stress to the sea turtles. Um, and they kind of thought, oh, yeah, well, of course, every time we take a sample, either from sand or from water, we're going to collect DNA from other species, no big deal, we're not interested in it, so we just discard it, all we care about is the turtles. But then they thought, well, maybe we should just check about this other information. And they were really shocked at the amount of um, human DNA they found in their samples, and even more shocked at the fact that they could get so much information out of these samples. So we just have to be aware that we are leaving traces of DNA everywhere around us. And Typically, you think of a DNA sample from a human as something that a medical practitioner collects. Maybe it's a blood sample, maybe it's a cheek swab um, or a biopsy. And, you know, people choose to send those samples. Maybe they want to use, I don't know what they're all called, me. What is it, 23andMe and Ancestry.com? You know, you can choose, but that's your choice. That's your sample. And you give consent for somebody to analyse it and look at your DNA But these researchers said, well, let's just have a look at actually how widespread human DNA is in the environment. And so they collected samples from all around Florida, really, you know, places full of people, then um, isolated beaches, oceans, rivers, and they came out and said basically they found DNA everywhere they looked, except for a remote island that nobody goes to. But even really, you know... um, you know, places that were very isolated, they still found human DNA. They did the same thing in Ireland. They, they collected water samples all the way along a river from a completely isolated mountaintop right down to a village. And again, they found human DNA everywhere other than right on top of the mountain. And, you know, like that's quite shocking. Mm. And their yeah. argument is, you know, what, what what does this say? All of this information that's out there in the world is kind of available without consent. And they said, you know, that the DNA is good enough quality that you can look at somebody's gender, you can work out their race, and probably even more scary that you can get information about mutations they have which can be used to predict the likelihood of that person developing a particular disease, wow. a particular medical Oh, because you condition. went on a bushwalk in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. But, you know, this is information that we might think is completely private or that we want to keep private. So they've turned this um this DNA human genetic bycatch, oh, <laughs> which wow. is an awesome term. And they're just saying we've got to have a discussion about this. The ethics of this is really, really important. And yes, like Daniel says, it could be really important for monitoring the spread of COVID or monitoring drug use. You know, there's all sorts of good things. But what about the consent and confidentiality and the forensic implications? You know, the mm. forensics it could be great. But if I can walk into a room and take an air sample and say, well, we know there was a crime committed here yesterday and this sample tells me that Daniel was here yesterday, does that now mean Daniel's a suspect in a crime? Well, yes. Well, that's a worry, right? Mm. Because we don't have kind of, you know, we don't have good information yet about what the time lag might be and mm. whether sample samples there. And, you know, if you had a cold and you were coughing more, uh, I'm not an expert here, but I'm guessing you've left more samples in the room, mm. more DNA in the room. What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, and, what have you done? And at the moment, it is
0: a completely sort of unregulated space. Yeah, well.
5: yeah, yeah. So these researchers are saying, you know, there are people out there collecting environmental samples, soil, air, water, sand, for their work. There is currently no regulation around what they do with this bycatch information. There's nothing... But then there's people who could be going out deliberately and collecting these samples and somehow trying to profile people. I mean, it's just – the point is it's completely unregulated. Yeah. How available is the technology, I guess, to read this widely? Pretty available. available? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, genetic technology – genetic sequencing is not – in any way new or not even particularly expensive anymore, which is wonderful, right? Like Mm. I don't want to be too negative. The, The fact that this science exists and that it's accessible and that it's accurate, all of that is wonderful for many, many things out there in the world. But this bycatch means that there's just the potential for a whole lot of misuse that is not you know, has not yet been discussed. And the air samples thing is something that really worries me. So these researchers collected air samples from the veterinary clinic where they work just to see if, you know, because water is one thing, right? Mm. But air, and they were able to um, recover DNA from the air, matching the people who'd spent time in those rooms. So it is that powerful.
2: We cannot get people to care about privacy though. It's just too, it's for some reason no one it's, – it's, is it nebulous or it's too – maybe sometimes when the rubber hits the road we can get exercised over it and I am because I find this incredibly alarming. Mm. Um, but people I suppose go, well, if I've done anything wrong, have at it. It's just that what you're doing now might be wrong in the future.
5: Yeah. And I mean, I guess the other thing is that you, you know, as Gattaca shows us, you can't prevent yourself unless you're going to live in a bubble. You can't stop your DNA being shed, mm. which is just why we then need to talk about, well, what are the, what are the expectations, rules, regulations, otherwise around what can be done with the information? What a can of worms. Oh,
3: yes. <laughs> Full of DNA.
2: Uh, I got an A+, plus basically, because I plagiarised you, Dr. Jen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, EDNA. It's all fascinating. You can read more on nature.com about the new study. So great to have you in.
5: Thank you. Triple
2: Ah. Mycelium, the fungus mushrooms are made of, can also produce everything from plastics to plant-based meat to a scaffolding for human organs and more besides. Scientific American says the mycelium revolution is upon us and it's a claim explored by a new exhibition as part of Melbourne Design Week. Impermanent asks, what if the answers to creating a more sustainable world are contained in one of the oldest life forms on the planet? This free event is on now at Abbotsford Convent. It's the brainchild of social impact Consultancy Ellis Jones, and to tell us about it, the firm's principal and design director, David Constantine, joins us now. David, welcome to Breakfasters.
9: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Now, tell us what is mycelium.
9: It's a good question. Well, you gave a pretty good summary of it there, but essentially, mycelium is in soil all around us, um, and it is the it's a network of fungal threads, which um, sounds lovely, but uh, essentially, it's the it's it's the bedrock on which mushrooms grow. So it is, um, it's really complex, um, it's really hardy, and it has a natural cycle to it, which allows it to be both growing and decaying at the same time. Mm. Um, so as a metaphor for this idea of circularity, which is essentially this model of consumption where materials are used and reused and essentially waste is eliminated. Um, it's, it's a wonderful vehicle to explore that. And it's a really, as you say, an emergent material across a number of different sectors, manufacturing and, and design um, for the future. So we've known about it for ages but
2: didn't know its potential until relatively recently?
9: Yeah, that's right. Or, or at least its application, you know um for a long time, systems of design and manufacture were really about uh, to some degree agnostic to the resources that they were using in order to produce products. Essentially, it was the market required products, products were designed and developed, and then they were manufactured in the most efficient way in order to generate as much profit for the companies that made them um, over time obviously we 've seen the uh, the outcome of that is not great for the environment and for the planet so the challenge that designers have taken on is to reimagine what those materials might look like and those processes. And as part of that, mycelium has emerged. As a great contender for something that's very flexible, very versatile, and you know it can be it can be grown into forms. Um, we can talk a little bit about some of the things that are in the exhibition in a, in a moment, but um, it can it can be put into solid forms in the way that plastics or other molded materials might be. But equally, it can be used to break down material, so it can be um, put into a recycling process with textiles and other materials that wouldn't normally break down quickly in the ground. And it works on that material to take it back to nature, to its, to its original state. Mm. So it's very flexible.
0: Absolutely. And as Daniel and you were just sort of, I suppose, discussing, it is a bit of a nascent field with a lot of potential. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the momentum that you're seeing and potentially the promise and the reality of how this could be incorporated into our
9: economy yeah. and life. Ab- absolutely. So, and I think th- this is part of the opportunity that Impermanent um, represents as, as an exhibition as well. So, I'll give you a little bit of context. Um, the reason that Ellis Jones began this process is ultimately we're a social impact consultancy, which sounds a little bit nebulous, but ultimately we're experts. That's your life's
2: work, David. Yeah. <laughs> well, not here you refer to your own work.
9: Is, to a degree. Uh, like all things, you know, an idea is an idea until you make it practical yeah. and it does something. So what we do do uh, is that... Identity, behaviour and creativity are the things that we think that we're experts in and ultimately we use those things in different combinations with different people that we work with, organisations, governments, businesses, whoever Um, and we, we put those things together in order to solve their problems but ultimately to create positive change. In society, so um, the opportunity that we had in being introduced to RMIT to Dr. Judith Glover there, who's our expert on the project, and um, Josh Reisel, who um, is the kind of is Mister Mycelium. I've seen him described as Um, he's the preeminent practitioner with design um, and mycelium in Australia at the moment. When we talked to them about bringing this exhibition together, the opportunity was not just to do a survey of great work, which it is. Um, but it was to be able to connect to our community of people that we work with, which is you know, some of the largest businesses in Australia within, within circularity and waste, and to be able to connect them and say, look, here is the, here's the latest and greatest. This is what Australian design is doing at the forefront of anything in the world with Mycelium in terms of making new packaging materials, in terms of using it in clothing production, in terms of um, furniture and lighting. And for these big businesses to go well, what's the opportunity here if you scale that up? Because these are great ideas, but if we can really amp it up and we can introduce them to people that can take that at scale to some of Australia's largest businesses, then we start talking about that positive social impact that's being generated. Mm. Fantastic.
2: And we've seen a lot about waste being sent overseas and it's a, it's a hot issue. Do you, mm. do you see maybe a, a solution here?
9: Absolutely. I mean, well, there's, there's two parts to the solution that mycelium. Well, I'm sure there's many, but two two principal parts to the solution that mycelium represents. One is that if we begin to integrate this into our systems of production and consumption, then ultimately we're going to we're not going to have waste to deal with. Um, you know, these are products that have a life cycle and then they degrade back into the ground. So, for instance, one of the works at the exhibition is a series of lights, and the brief for the design and realisation of these lights was that they could only last, or they were designed for the length of Melbourne Design Week. Mm-hmm. And so they, were, they took months to grow, and then they will break down over the, over the time that the exhibition is on, and then at the end, they'll be able to be put back into the earth, or put into another mycelium batch in order to be able to regrow. Similarly, there's a system of architectural cladding for buildings, which is, which is absolutely stunning aesthetically, but more importantly, it's, it's made for bushfire-prone areas, and it has mycelium and glass fibres grown into the middle of it, which also include remnants of the ceramic tiles that case, encase it from a previous project that's ground up, put in, reused, and then the whole thing is used on buildings to stop them from catching fire in bushfires. When that's done, it can be broken down and reused in another project. So eliminating waste is big, Mm. but then also, as I said, mycelium is being used as a way of kind of supercharging biodegradable processes of returning and and breaking down landfill so that it can be used in other ways as well.
1: Is there a particular product or design Uh, you're particularly excited about?
9: Look, being being a designer as well, first and foremost, I think um, to be able to encounter new materials in really mm. interesting, so more interesting and complex forms, and also the aesthetics, the beauty of the thing. You might think, well, you know, how how attractive can fungus be? Um, Very, as it turns out. So there is some wonderful things. I mentioned some lighting designs. Mm. So work, Josh, who I mentioned earlier, was working with a number of the project teams um, on the on the work that came in. But he mentioned to me last week he'd spent ten hours assembling these lights the, the day before the the festival with the team. But they're just lovely. They, it's almost like um, you know, kind of an industrial aesthetic, like a cast kind of concrete thing that you'd find in really modern architecture. But it's got this texture to it and this warmth it's a kind of a kind of an off-whitey type color and so it's really dense and 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 lovely textured very beautiful and then of course when you throw light across something like that it just picks up all the details and surfaces it's really mesmerizing the other one being the the ceramic tiles that i mentioned earlier
0: well it is really thrilling to hear the different ways in which this particular material is being adopted in sort of commercial context as well really feels like a threshold moment could you Talk us through what your vision is of the future, of how industries will sort of
9: take on these materials and what we might be likely to see. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I guess the, I mentioned at the start, we're using mycelium as a metaphor here. It, it's great. It's, a, it's an, as you say, an emergent material. It's kind of the it material of sustainability at the moment. That's part of the reason that we picked it as the centre, centre point of the exhibition. But ultimately the mentality is broader than that, this idea of building this circularity into our systems of consumption. And there's lots of other really interesting emerging products that have come up around the world. There's lots of leather alternatives that have been made from different fibres. There's one made from pineapple fibre, which is um, matches all the properties of leather and and more so, and is completely vegan to produce. It also deals with waste products from harvesting of pineapples in, on industrial levels in certain parts of the world. Ultimately, the, the impact is going to be made through... Building these these presentations of um, viable alternatives to the to the much more petroleum required or um, you know, exploitative um, materials that currently exist, and I think that there is an appetite. As I say, we see that um, one of the exhibition items is actually just packaging that has been grown. So rather than that kind of packaging you get when you get your Amazon order, which is either polystyrene or it's or it's virgin wood pulp that's been turned into those those containers for wine bottles and other things. Um, you can use mycelium and a whole heap of other materials to grow those that, again, they're going to be completely biodegradable, they're going to go back into the, into the earth at the end of it. So scale is the key, um, and as soon as we can put a proposition to the biggest businesses that manufacture these products that actually it's more sustainable, um, it's more cost-effective and it's equal in terms of performance, then it's going to be a no-brainer because every, country, every company in the world that makes something has to deal with the waste, um, and that has an enormous cost to the business. So there's a financial proposition to it, as well as a, an ecological and a sustainable proposition.
1: I mean, this all sounds incredible. Are there any barriers for people kind of adopting, you know, or working with this material?
9: Yeah, well, it's it's uh, two. So one is um, time. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is a, this is a natural product. So we started talking about this exhibition in June twenty twenty two. The main reason for that was because RMIT for some of the projects needed almost six months to grow the mycelium product. Um, Now, there are ways to get around that, and and that's how the the approach and the technology and the methods are are evolving to be able to scale this and make that more rapid. But ultimately, it is a natural cycle, and it takes time to develop. Of course, the other one is that if you're talking about scaling up and using them across big businesses, there's always a risk. Um, They have established systems of manufacture. they They have machinery that's built for certain substrates, so you really need to make a very compelling proposition and they need to be at a point of change in order to invest in updating. So that's probably the biggest barrier to it being taken up wholesale. But as we see, and the fact that I'm talking to you about this, the fact that the exhibition has been so well received, that there are so many designers working in this field, the expectations on consumers from brands and that the patterns that people are displaying with their consumption of products and their preference for sustainable choices and circular manufacturing is starting to pressure Companies into thinking seriously about this. Even if there is a buy-in cost, then the payoffs in terms of their brand, their saleability their consumer attitude to the brand is going to be is going to be huge. And people are moving on that.
2: Mm. Has putting together the the exhibition helped you channel uh, the ideas and have a a place in a space where we can have a visual representation of the future? I I
9: think so. I think that from from the perspective of just mycelium as one material as part of this circular movement. Um, This is an exceptional exhibition and and thankfully it's been already recognised as I was saying to the team earlier. um, you know, We had nearly 300 people to the launch on a very cold and windy uh, Thursday night in Abbotsford last week. Um, It's been very well attended. We've had talks. We've got more talks. We're actually doing uh, workshops with um, secondary teachers across the state who are coming in to see this so that they can start to teach their students who are coming through about it. I don't think you'll find a better survey of mycelium work Um, in Australia and possibly even internationally. um, The the calibre of what we've got there is exceptional and the breadth is just um, not seen before. All right.
2: Well, we've gone from the nebulous to the tangible, most (laughs) definitely. Uh, Impermanent is the mycelium exhibition on now at Abbotsford Convent. It's free. Head to abbotsfordconvent.com.au or designweek.melbourne. And we've been speaking with David Constantine, Principal and Design Director at Social Impact Consultancy Firm, Ellis Jones. Thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me.
3: Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
5: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
2: Rachel Kamarth and Shamita Siva star in Crocodile's a new play about class, culture and responsibility in the aged care sector. The new work from playwright Vijay Rajan and produced by award-winning company Elbow Room, Crocodile explores who gets to make mistakes and who cleans up the mess. Its preview performance... Is tomorrow night and tell us about crocodile and its creation. <laughs> Two of the lead actors join us now, Rachel and Shemitah. Welcome to Breakfasters.
8: Hello, thank you
3: for having us. <laughs> morning, morning. Hey. Morning.
2: <laughs> so what have we got ourselves into here with crocodiles?
8: Well, there's lots happening. It's um I think it's a really beautiful, heartfelt story with, you know, sprinkles of comedy but really getting you in a humorous way to question the system of aged care and just how I guess as a society we are allowing it to run and Um, At the end of the day, the moral responsibility stands with us to Mm. do better. Mm.
3: Yes, definitely talking about a lot of... I mean, we follow these characters whose voices we don't get to hear very often, um, especially within theatre, and it's a really honest portrayal of their friendship and the way that it is tested when their, I guess, prospective careers are about to go downhill because of a scandal.
2: Yeah, so tell us about these voices. Was Vidya working in aged care at some point?
8: Yeah, she's had some first-hand experience um, of visiting some of these places and sort of she's talked to a lot of you know the workers and seen the patients there as well and obviously the people who live in aged care, um, not just the patients. But, yeah, so I think she was, um, I don't want to say inspired, but I guess moved by her experiences there and she decided to write this play. Mm. Really stayed with her and it's been in the works for a while. She's been working on it for a few years now, actually. Was like two? Um, yeah I think a bit longer in terms of development and getting it together so we're glad that it's finally coming on stage and people get to see it and you know hopefully be moved by this experience just like she was.
0: Absolutely and congratulations. Um, Thanks. We're very um, very excited as Sandra mentioned about the the performance but also I suppose we'd love to hear your experience of working in the Mm. development of the play. Obviously these characters are so complex and require deep empathy can you talk yeah. about it
3: from your perspective 100% um so I got involved at quite a different stage of the process than Rachel she's been on this for a long longer than I have um when did me and Marcel talk about this I want to say a couple of months ago um and yeah he was like you know you'd be playing these two different characters so for me it's quite interesting because I play one of the aged care workers Neela but I also play later on Priya who is like the kind of one of the big bosses and the wife of the guy who pretty much runs the the show at The aged care home. And, yeah, finding empathy for both sides of the coin was really interesting because one of the characters, I mean, like she's very funny, she's very cutting, she's very sharp. It's easy to like her but she makes questionable decisions which you can't necessarily blame her for, you know. People need to save their skins at the end of the day. But simultaneously on the other side you've got Priya who is interestingly a woman of colour but also in a position of power and it's interesting to see her I guess her tussle and her wrestle with her guilt and wanting to do better and be better for these other people but also playing into systems of power that she's kind of benefiting from anyway
0: absolutely and so it becomes then I guess a little bit of an indictment on those systems as well and the cruelty that can be inherent to them
3: Mm, definitely what do you Oh, no, I was
1: just going to say, so obviously, yeah, our aged care sector, you know, there's, it's been in the news a lot over the last couple of years, a, a lot of failing shortcomings. Is there anything that you were, you felt like you'd learned or um, you were surprised by, by going through this process?
8: Yeah, absolutely. I guess I didn't really um, – someone who doesn't really have anyone or anyone I know in, in aged care, I was really surprised by um, how quickly people were certified to be in charge of these, uh, you know, of um, the ones – I would say of the most vulnerable people in our society um, and also how how many, how overworked they are and underpaid. Mm-hmm. So it's really a sector. If you think about it, sure, we can say, okay, the workers need to be trained more and all of that. But if you aren't paying them – Enough, And if you're really asking them to take care of a lot of people, what is the quality of care that you can expect? Mm. So it is a systemic thing where we're in any industry cannot expect a good quality product or service if you are asking people to do so much work in so many hours and not pay them enough. So it really is, I think a very logical thing to fix but somehow has just been overlooked and I was just surprised at how simple that whole equation was and how I guess it's been so hard even for families to find a way to voice that and to get their complaints across. Like that's been quite shocking.
3: Yeah, definitely.
8: Can
2: you tell us how, if at all, Crocodiles Mm -hmm. addresses uh, the idea of family in this sector that, I don't know, Mm -hmm. has a fraught relationship with family sometimes?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I suppose we, well, your character particular Sandhya um interacts a fair bit with I guess the main family of this whole situation. Yeah. And it's interesting because our characters have this discussion where they're like surprised almost by how, you know, upset and emotional um the the son of one of our patients gets. And that's a really interesting moment because I'm like, well, of course they get emotional. But I wonder if there's an element to which, you know, you see so many of these families, you see so many of these people, they, they almost become a number um, but that being said, like, it's really lovely because we get to see all shades of these characters who maybe on the surface or uh, seem or come across as a little bit just like uncaring children who are dumping these parents into nursing homes. But that's not the case at all. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, the idea of seeing your loved ones getting older, getting weaker, it's it's difficult. And like, it's not easy to assist people kind of nearing the end of their lives in this way and so it's really interesting seeing the emotional labor taken on by the families but also by the workers of the system yeah I
8: mean I would add to that and say like um it's I think the family is expecting a certain level of care and expecting certain things to be in place which is absolutely like that's completely fair, fair yeah but then also like who are these wide of we all have families, right? So it's like the wider people allowing this to exist as well. Mm. So then it's it's saying, like, maybe it's time to try and make a change, not just when your family member's in it, but, mm-hmm. like, to try and right now yeah. always be aware of what's happening around you for all stratas of society. Yeah. And just, I guess, having a voice when it's needed for everyone. So we're really hoping everyone understands what the implications of this are for future Australians and for us currently, and so that we can all try and, you know, really try and make a difference by hopefully influencing where our votes go, what we ask for, that sort of thing. That's sort of that wider, mm. where we you know, widely want to go with this. Hopefully it's like a little tool for change.
2: Yeah. yeah. If a Royal Commission can't do it, but maybe theatre
3: can.
8: Well, you know, theatre can do great things and hopefully this could be one of them. Yeah. <laughs>
3: well, at the very least, you know, inspire more discussions about it. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things like ageing is sort of like we push it to the side and we're like, oh, we'll just think about it when the time comes, mm. when the time comes. But it's like, no, we should probably be talking about all of this now, right? We all have families who are getting older. It's uh, it's an important thing to be discussed, I think. Well,
2: that's right. And it's such greased for the theatrical meal as well, where mm. you're dealing literally with life and death. It's a very timely issue and the sector touches all of us. So there's a lot to play with. But I suppose you do come up against the resistance that families come up against, which is that they find the scene a little bit uh, off-putting. Yeah, or it's difficult. To, yeah.
8: Yeah,
3: yeah for
2: sure. So then, how do you leverage? how do you let make an audience jump over, make that jump?
8: I would say like end of the day, this is like a human experience, right? Like if we go to go to the core of it, we're talking about, People being isolated. We're talking about loneliness, and I feel like after, especially if you're in Melbourne, the mm-hmm. lockdown after <laughs> the pandemic. I think people really understand what it means to have connection, to have, to really have people to talk to, to have that emotional exchange with 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 others, and what that means to you know humanity, is having living a fulfilling life. And so really having that taken away, when you're probably at one of your most vulnerable stages of life, like, I think that's the core of it. Mm. You know, we can, um, one of the things that we came across was also this idea of, you can have all these great facilities, but what about that human connection? Mm -hmm. People, you know, just most of them just having to watch TV or just been sitting in their rooms all day, not having that interaction anymore that they were so used to when they were maybe living at home or living in a wider community. And so... That, I think, is the link to anyone who's experienced that loneliness and know what, you know, craves that connection, to see this play and say, not just, to, not just the people um, who, who are living in the aged care, but also working there endlessly, tirelessly, being forced to confront this by themselves for a big number of patients what is the implication of that on our on our workers as well Mm. as well as people living in there
3: and you see that a lot with your character Sandhya as well she um really her only friend in this country is Neela my character who pisses off to (laughs) sunny Queensland (laughs) and so you know we really see the loneliness of not only the residents but you know sometimes the workers as well and
8: especially if they're migrant workers I think Mm. when we're Trying to get more people to come into the aged care um, sector from overseas. Also, what are we providing them other than just an idea of, oh, you get to work here and you get to possibly live in Australia? Mm. But then, again, for them to have that um, connection, to be then able to better take care of the people who want them to take care of. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Are you tired of talking about it and you're ready to go tomorrow night?
8: (laughs) Yes, and we're very excited, a bit nervous. Oh, look, the nerves are always there. But I think
3: nervousness is healthy, at least for me. I don't know. I think I perform best when I'm a little nervous. (laughs) I think
8: most performers do, absolutely. And we're very excited to share the story with all of you. So, yeah, come watch Crocodiles.
2: Exactly. Well, the preview performance is Wednesday, 24. May at 7.30. Opening night is Thursday and there'll be a post-show talk next Wednesday as well and an, there's an Auslan interpreted performance in there as well so for all information where should we go perhaps uh, arts.darabin.vic.gov.au That would be
3: a great one yes we have some social stuff up on Elbow Room as well yeah,
2: beautiful. Take Cro- to the
3: internet. <laughs>
2: Crocodiles is the new play we've been speaking about, and uh, joining us has been two stars, Rachel Kamath and Shamita Seva. Great joy to meet you.
3: Thank, Thank you, you. Thanks for having us.
1: Triple R. I want to talk about game-changing purchases or items. I had that term uttered to me three times over the weekend.
0: About different items or about the same item?
1: Twice was for the same item. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and then yeah, so there was two different things. One of them I'm a little hesitant on. I have my reservations about, so I am keen to hear your thoughts. Mm. I have one friend at the moment who is incredibly passionate about this item and yeah, she keeps telling me what a game changer (laughs) it is and it's an electric blanket.
0: I, I can understand yeah. for those who get quite cold at night that that could be classified as a game changer.
1: And I'm not sure if it's just me, but I maybe, you know, I'm caught back in time, like outdated ideas of an electric blanket. I thought they were kind of across the board, like regarded as a little risky, you know, that they could be a bit of a fire hazard. And she's like, no, that is – those days are over Everyone is all about the electric blanket.
0: I'm relieved to hear that because I do know that in the past it has had that reputation, but it's nice to know that there's a new generation of safety-first electric She's blankets. She's spruiking that message <laughs>
1: okay. um, really strongly. I'm not entirely sure what, it, what it's based on. I think just her experience. My concern also is just it's another thing to turn off. Like I, I just don't think I can take it. I've become so anxious about turning things off. Like it's really escalated in the last couple of years to the point where I have to take photos of most things before I leave the house <laughs> just because I know I'm going to be on the tram and go.
0: <gasps> and so you've got a visual inventory of every item switched off. A d- yeah. Digital memento. <laughs> yeah,
1: I do. I know. It's so depressing going through and deleting it like, but oh, God, safeguard. get a grip. You're an adult. You can turn the... the the um, the stove off.
0: No, I appreciate that methodology.
1: So do either of you have an electric blanket? How do you feel about an electric well, blanket?
2: Well, surprisingly, this is the second time electric blankets have come up recently in my yeah. life. Gemma Helms in the office, we were talking about uh, electric blankets. I was of the belief that water beds were, say, the 70s. Or were or uh, 80s, 80s? Yep. okay. Then after that, maybe futons mm-hmm. kicked off. Yep. And then I would argue then electric blankets had their moment.
1: It was, so are we are we in early what – where are we now? What decade are we in with the electric blanket?
2: I think we're in the – I thought we were in the late 90s. You're in the late 90s with electric mm, blanket. And I okay. feel like all things, they're circular and they maybe this has come around again. It's come back. Mm, I mean, presumably technology has improved because, yeah, I would agree there's an inherent yeah. uh, electrocution threat.
1: But it would, so you kind of – you're like, no, nah, I wouldn't go there.
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I feel like it's a slight on my own body's capacity to generate its own heat.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I I think that's they sound
0: delightful. Like, so you're intrigued conceptually by the the electric banker but you're just concerned about the logistics i'm
1: just concerned yes. i'm just straight up concerned <laughs> but maybe i am stuck in the past mm. you know maybe they've changed and then i was because she's like no you just put it on you don't leave it on she stressed she's like no don't be well, stupid some people
0: put it on before like maybe half an hour before they go to bed and then they switch it off then. that's what she
1: said oh. she's like you put it on you get in and then you turn it off so stop banging on <laughs> about leaving it on you're being ridiculous she's been quite stern with me she's And she said she bought hers from, like, a a chain supermarket at an excellent price point. She's like, get on with it. Like, you'll love it. You'll sleep so well, keep you so warm. And I was like, okay, maybe she's got a point. Like, if these kind of big supermarkets are getting behind them, selling them, you know, there, there must be more confidence in the product, but then I was like, "Wait a minute, no." When did producing something on mass cheaply mean safety or quality? Mm. I, I'm I'm stumped. I I'm feel like sure.
2: meanwhile the water bottle's just sitting in the corner saying, <laughs> "Look at me, I've been here all along."
1: Yes, I, see, I love the water bottle. Mm. That is excellent. I'm so glad you brought that up. The hot water bottle, because that's a great reminder. Like, actually, no.
2: And also with, the, with the, the, the hot, water, hot bottle. water bottles with the – what would you say sheepskin or whatever yeah. the traditional coating was, I felt like once they were – Hot from the the kettle or whatever mm. they they were of course they were hot they were crazy hot mm. and you know you could wet the bed and singe yourself <laughs> there are dangers in this life yes uh, but the there was a there was a slow burn warmth to it unlike mm. the things that come out of the microwave that like
1: <laughs> oh the bean bag yeah type like things. stink
2: like a hot rose <laughs> bush yeah they kind
1: of they're quite sweaty aren't they yeah
2: they're sweaty and they're too they're too burny to the touch immediately
1: mm-hmm, but
2: I feel like the hot water bottle has like a low flame. Yeah. Mm. It's like putting a frog in
1: in the <laughs> boiling water. You, yeah. know, you don't realise straight away. You apparently – there's safety issues as well. Like you said, there is risks in this life. Mm. You do – I remember finding a tag on my water bottle saying you, you should register your water bottle.
2: <laughs> so like, they, a, like a Mikey. Yeah. <laughs> Top
1: it up. Um, no, so that they can remind you, send you an email when you should replace
2: it. Uh, honestly, I would yeah. rather get burned in my sleep
8: than <laughs> send that email. Your hot water bottle.
1: <laughs> there was one other game-changing item. The second one was, which I think is been quite popular, but is quite literally going back in time, people switching to um, a non-smartphone. My friend was like, I've gone to a flip phone and it's been an absolute game changer. So I I would love to do that. Do you think either of you would be capable of that?
0: I mean, I did enjoy when I had my Nokia.
1: So you, you've you done it.
0: I, but this was, I think, before I had a, a like A, a smartphone. smartphone
1: ever. So it wasn't like you tasted the fruit <laughs> and then you went back.
0: I mean, I definitely have seen sort of these minimalist, yeah. sort of, you know, um, downgraded functionalities of the phones to sort of, you know, untether yourself from it. Mm-hmm. But I do find the utility of the smartphone uh, Yeah, it's compelling. incredible. Yeah.
1: I know I was very slow on the uptake of a smartphone. I really kind of went kicking and screaming. But, yeah, once you, you cross over, it's really hard to go back. It's an adjustment. I went from, like, barely being contactable. Like, the phone pretty much failed in all its functions, and then I went to just everything all on one device. But, yeah, I wonder if I could go back. They have – yeah, my friend was like,
2: it's incredible. You should do it. Jonathan Schuster, who's on this program, mm. regularly is a Friday funny bugger's filled in. He's uh, went a year without a phone. Uh- wow. <laughs> and apparently it torched some friendships or whatever. Like yeah. you would organise to be somewhere and you would be in a pub and people are used to, like, texting, where are you, instead of, I don't know – open up your eyes and look around and so they'll look for him and then they'll just go home and he was there the whole time
1: i like the idea of like because yeah everyone makes a plan and then like incrementally pushes it back by five minutes (laughs) so that's what i do anyway so something to learn from jonathan
7: triple r dirt dirt
9: dirt
4: where you grown your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you
2: stop saying about dirt? It's time to get down and dirty with Digger on 46698 is here to get your gardening juices flowing this autumn. Morning Digger. <laughs> Good
7: Morning all. What what's a glorious it like? morning. It is,
2: it's beautiful.
7: Yeah, scraping no ice off. There's just everything was clear this morning. The car just jumped in, out.
2: What's what's hitting you lately?
7: Um, It's a weird one. Like, we are technically 10 days out from winter, but I'm just starting to see the bulk of the autumn colour now. Usually it's a lot earlier, and there's been some incredible anomalies because there's usually a sequence of the sorts of species that go into dormancy first. Um, and then they follow out, and you kind of love to watch this little dance that they do. It's like, okay, now I've seen you, now I'm expecting (laughs) you, and then you're going to follow up at the end with a big crescendo. And it's all over the joint. Like, usually apricots are one of the first to go with their beautiful butter yellow, haven't even started. And then we've got um, persimmons, which are usually one of the later ones, and they're deep, dark colours, and they have a very long, you know, deciduous season And they're only about halfway through now. Apples haven't even started. The grapes are nearly finished. European plums have finished. Asian plums haven't started. It is literally just this rhapsody of madness. Wow, rhapsody
0: of madness. Is, Is it possible to determine what might be the cause?
7: Well, it's because obviously deciduous plants come from colder regions in the world. And it just reminds me how bloody amazing they are, that they're all looking for a particular sequence of temperature dropping so the ones from China are very different from North America um, and then other ones from South America different again and then some up into deep Siberia different again. So it's just a very particular sequence of temperature and they're just not getting it. So they'll wait and they'll just wait and wait and wait where others are like, yeah, this is familiar to me. I'll go now. Um, it's just such an amazing thing. I wish, I, especially this year, because it's probably, I've, I've seen it kind of happen before but not as dramatic as this year. And I'd wish I'd kept some data on it because it's been... Quite interesting.
1: The well, Digger
2: Notebook. <laughs> yeah. would, would plants or trees what would they think of our modern feels like temperature? <laughs>
7: yeah. That's all they use is feels like. Yeah. There's never been anything other than feels like. So um, good on them. I, you know, I think we've had this discussion before. I want to know who has that job.
0: Oh, <laughs> like right.
7: that's that's. I mean, I, you know, all the big ones on the TV. They should just go with that because they're never really right. We have these temperatures, but. We kind of all just go by feels like anyway. I think so. Yeah? So, yes. Yeah, let's go. Let's start a campaign. There's
2: lots to unpack there. <laughs> uh, now, hi, Digger. I'm about to plant 28 Japanese box to form a hedge. Can I just dig a trench or separate holes?
7: No, absolutely dig a trench. If you're going to do any kind of row of small plants, um, yeah, digging a trench is way easier. Uh, and that way you tend to get less um, inconsistency of growth patterns because if you dig individual holes, some of them are a little bit deeper than others, some are a bit wider... And where you've got a trench, everyone's getting the same kind of food, um, the same compaction, et cetera. Do, mm. a tr- do a trench.
2: What inspires your awe in, during autumn?
7: Uh, um, gee, there's so many. It, just individual moments of when a tree is absolutely at its peak mm. and the fact that I was there and just happened to cross its path at its absolute peak. It's almost like you want to stop people in the street and say, no, this is this is the perfect day. Just yeah. stay here because tomorrow <laughs> it's not going to be as good as it is. Yeah. As it's peaking. It is, it's peaking right now. Everyone just stop. Stop the tram. Everyone Community take, service. Yeah, take three minutes out of your day to stop and just look at glory. Um, so right now I'm seeing some beautiful Chinese pistachio, um, which is an ornamental tree. It's not an edible pistachio. Um, pistachio chinensis. Um, and they have this range of colour, so that's yellow, then it gets through to right, really deep reds. But right now it's in that middle phase of where they're almost mango-coloured leaves mm. and it's it's peaking in mango right now. The pistachios. Where,
1: where could we see these around um, in the the s-
7: Just go in the suburbs, yep. in the, in the streets. So they're a fairly rounded tree. You'll be looking at something about three to five metres tall mm-hmm. with kind of like a mushroom kind of top. On them, um, but the colour is, it'll stand out. And usually, this, oh God, I can't believe I'm going to say this on air. Usually, they're in people's front gardens, and when you're looking at the house, on the back right hand side. There's some, <laughs> there's some plant trends that happened over time mm. where one person did it and everyone just started doing it. Like Colinema pulchrum, which is the golden diosma, is a hedge at the front out in Doncaster. You go to Doncaster, Colinema pulchrum, front friends. Um, there's the the Japanese quince, which is an ornamental quince. Um, Shamalosery is at the front left hand corner of people's <laughs> gardens all the time. I love that. <laughs> yeah. that
2: tracks with my observation. That's so that, what a <laughs> tremendously niche observation. <laughs> um, am I a hack for liking elms?
7: No, absolutely not. You know, elms are such graceful, beautiful things, such significant. Hence, you know, they're planted in large gardens for significance all the time. Mm.
0: And speaking of um, sort of opportunities to observe trees in their in their glory, would there be public spaces or parks that you'd also recommend
7: visiting? Uh, yeah, so many. Like I think I mentioned before, if you start to get up, because everything's so slow down in the flats in Melbourne, if you start to go up a little bit, elevations, you know, up to Macedon, up to the Dandenongs, you start to see there'll be a lot more um, and then obviously that kind of trickles down it'll be about three weeks to four weeks later um, but just go out to older suburbs older gardens where you just see big examples of all these beautiful specimens um, you can't go wrong Avenue of Honours we're just talking briefly about Avenue of Honours um, even if you get out into country towns and look at the Avenue of Honours their the color it's one thing to see an individual specimen and to be able to walk around it and wonder at it, but to see very mature trees over 500 metres a kilometre or whatever it might be, just so, so powerful.
2: You mentioned uh, a tree peaking. Could you, let's say you did get out of a deck chair and watch, mm-hmm. how fastly might you see a leaf evolve?
7: Um, no, you probably wouldn't, you know, you'd probably have to sit there and keep your eyes open for probably 48 hours to see, you know, and film it for 48 hours to see it track. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, obviously with that, depending on different times and different, different plants, some of it happens a lot faster. Some will happen over, you know, five days. Some will happen over three weeks. Some will happen over two months. So it depends on the species. Yeah.
1: And what about native trees as well with their leaves turning... Um changing color. Yeah, we well see we that? only
7: have we only have about half a dozen deciduous trees in Australia, um, none native to Victoria but mm-hmm. some from um, the north of Fagus in Tasmania we get we have growing in in Victoria. So, um, usually just on the on the yellow sides, not the deep deep reds or anything like that, just beautiful yellows, which can't be under, you know, don't underestimate the beautiful yellows. One of my favorites of all time is the hazelnut, oh. which goes yellow, but then it stays it goes brown and stays on the tree. And it's kind of like this matte, leathery brown mm. while it's still sitting on the branches. And I, there's something Beautiful. I like about it. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> can you be of assistance with this picture? Uh, what is this glorious or oh t- tumble-coloured tree?
7: I yeah, yeah,
1: I can close it. It's all going on in here. Oh,
7: God, I just... I, see, I shouldn't touch computers. I just clicked it off. I don't know what to do. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me see Technical. if
0: I can open... Up the image here. Has it,
7: has it got, like, orangey-red and then... Where the are your glasses? Strands? Yeah, I yeah. no, Where are my glasses? Let's mine the tree. Yeah. Come on down go. your Oh, okay. there we go. Oh, beautiful. So that is Cottonous Grace, um, the smoke bush. Um, beautiful one. In glorious colour right now, It's a. it's got a very... Um, Trendy cousin coming on the market It's called <laughs> Cotness Royal Purple So these beautiful oranges and yellows and the reds And they'll go even deeper again But Royal Purple It's, it's plain leaf during the year is kind of like this deep burgundy And then when it changes colour It goes to a deep purple, almost a black wow. And that's its autumn colour is like Gee. deep purple So it goes from red to black
5: mm-hmm.
2: That Amazing. is superb Yeah,
7: so look out for that oh. one But that's Cotness Grace Fantastic. Uh,
2: there's another listener who says, this is autumn, as in. <laughs> uh, we have a non-fruiting so pomegranate. So autumn. <laughs> we have a non-fruiting pomegranate in the backyard. How do we get it to produce or do we get rid of it? Because who are we kidding?
7: Um, if, if it's not fruiting, then that's probably a chemical issue. But there are some semi-sterile little ornamental pomegranates. Um, so if you up the potash, so go to your nursery, look for sulphate of potash, sprinkle that around the base of the tree in winter. And if you're not getting anything by spring, then it's an ornamental. <laughs> wow.
1: I was going to bring that up. I just discovered last week I have a pome- pomegranate tree in the backyard. Ah, i got to remember, I know, i got to remember to bring all of this produce in for you, go. Yeah,
7: magical. So it's a fruiting, large yeah. fruiting one, and it's yeah. in beautiful colour now, if not completely dropped.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But the birds get to it pretty quickly. It's uh-huh. quite, it's very low hanging, it's yeah. quite low to the ground. But yeah. yeah, it was an awesome surprise. Yeah,
0: magic. Excellent. We've got and, a few questions. Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Sorry, Sorry, no. To interrupt, um, one uh, listener is asking, "What can I do to get my cymbidium mm-hmm. orchids to flower? They were in flower when I bought them, but not in the year since."
7: Yeah, okay. So again, liquid fertilising. So cymbidium orchids are winter flowering, very common. You'd see them in all the shops, and they're just about to start winter times. Their flowering season. So, if it depends on, they didn't mention if they've repotted. So from when they bought it, if they repotted it, then they can us- usually have about two years off for a flower. Um, and, and or if you've disturbed the roots by dividing them or anything like that. So if that hasn't happened, it just needs um, slow-release fertiliser. Um, if you want to do some liquid fertilising now, you may get some flowering this year, but usually the flower spikes have already started by now.
2: Mm-hmm. I have an English oak or Quercus robur yeah. in a very large pot in lieu of not having a garden. How long realistically can I keep it in there? I'm hoping to replant it into a garden one day.
7: Um, Well, being a a Quercus, they can actually be bonsai technically. So you could bonsai it for the next 400 years if you really wanted to. Um, If you wanted to eventually get it into the ground, remember you've got to repot every two years. So, you know, I just, as much as I love bonsai, it's something about those big, the potential majesty, majesty of those trees to get them into the ground when you can. So anyway, keep repotting in 50 centimetre pots Once it's past the 50-centimetre pot, I'd get it into the ground. All
2: right. Uh, Now, we also have a sinus question. What's blooming and driving people crazy presently? Oh.
7: Um, It could be all of the male pollen coming off the catkins from all of the witch hazel family. So think of silver birches and those kind of things. If there's any remnant male flowers still on, they're wind pollinated, so they're dumping a whole stack of pollen potentially.
2: Mm. And what are we looking at here?
7: Oh I think actually of people got to watch it. my glasses. Oh there we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving. It's another cottonness. Yeah, ah. and, with, and the back is a loripedalum, which is a, a lovely, lovely thing. So yeah, cottoners became very popular. The smoke bush is their common name. Uh, very popular in the last 10 years. Um, because when they flower in summer, they have this this flower that looks like it's actually on fire. There's smoke coming off mm. the shrub. Um, but their autumn colour is incredible. So yeah, another cotton.
1: Yeah, such rich colours yeah. in those photos mm. people are sending through. That's like... a like a, a rich wine red yeah, orange i'd love a jumper in that this
7: but there's just so many in one little plant we've got 15 leaves in that photo and there's just so many different tones of so many different colors it's a wonderful time of year and
0: we've got one other question really sure. quickly um, my Hakia Lorena hasn't mm-hmm. blossomed. It's one, one and a half years old. How long should I wait before? Waria? You've probably got
7: another three years. Three years. Yep. it's only a wee little baby. And when they do, Hakias are beautiful. They're called the pincushion bush. So it's like this little red sphere with these little white antennas coming off it everywhere. It's just absolutely magnificent. Magnate.
2: <laughs> well, you're casually very evocative. Thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> for that. You?
7: Catch you soon. Pleasure.
2: <laughs> ah,
9: that's right. Triple R.